the rule in the romance genre is happy ever after, H-E-A, or H-F-N, as you'll also see, which is happily for now. So, mm. you know, it ends, who knows what happens after the end, but it's going to end happily for this couple. And that's yes. a guarantee in this world of so little guarantees is really wonderful. It's not that other genres don't have stories with strong romantic subplots, themes, you know, experiences. The characters can go through a lot romantically, but in genre romance, it's going to end happily. So at least I know that when I go in and it becomes a challenge both as a reader and a writer. As a writer of romance, my readers know exactly how the book's going to end, but I have to keep them engaged. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career, and also to help them write the best manuscript that they can send off to that dream literary agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is passionate about helping writers alleviate stress during the literary agent research process and find fun, interest, and growth in their writing process. Today, I'm excited to bring on a fellow author accelerator book coach. I am a book coach in training, although I've done book coach for years. I have not completed the certification in the author accelerator program. I am moving towards certification as a book coach. And today I am lucky enough to be joined from another book coach who is a certified editor in the author accelerator program. Her name is Rona Goffstein, and she is a certified book coach whose passion is supporting writers to find their head, heart, and courage as they travel the yellow brick road to reach their heart's desire, a finished novel. Rona writes contemporary romance and will be launching a new series and pen name later this year, all of that which I will include in the show notes. Rona is also the president of Broad Universe, an international organization for women and alternatively gendered authors of speculative fiction as well as president of the New Hampshire chapter of RWA, or Romance Writers Association. You can find Rona at www.ronagoffstein.com and on her Facebook and Instagram at Write with Rona, and all of that I will include in the show notes. I'm thrilled to have Rona with me as we look at a first chapter and a deep dive analysis of a contemporary romance novel. We mentioned that Rona writes contemporary romance, so when we were deciding what contemporary romance novel did we want to analyze, I asked Rona, what are some options that you like? And she picked The Wedding Date by Jasmine Guillory. Jasmine Guillory is a New York Times bestselling author, and The Wedding Date was one of her more recent releases. I hadn't read The Wedding Date before this interview, so I was lucky enough to have another great book put in my reading list and even more fun to actually read it and explore it with Rona together. Hi, Rona. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to have you here. Rona is a fellow author, accelerator, editor, book coach companion, and I'm new into the author accelerator program. So it's been a great pleasure to meet so many book coaches, these fabulous book coaches, as I continue to find partners to do these deep dive analysis in. So thank you for coming and joining me today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Abigail. This is great. Yeah. So Rona, I'd love for you to tell the listeners, the writers who are listening to this, what do you specialize in as a book coach, as a writer? Because I know that one of the things that you do is the reason why we selected the book today. Well, I specialize in writers who are creating books that really contain a strong heroine's journey. And that dovetails very clearly, I should say, with what I write, which is romance. I write and I'm published in romance and I'm working on something in women's fiction. I love following that path, that emotional journey, that arc that a woman can take and that they do in these genres. Definitely. And you, you specifically said the heroine's journey. Do you see the heroine's journey as different than the hero's journey? It is. Their stakes are usually different. Their goals are different and their motivations. Actually, all three of the big GMC, their goal, their motivation and their conflicts tend to be different. And so what pulls them through the story, what creates their change is different than what's considered a traditional hero's journey. What are some of those changes that you see as different? For the hero, there's a conquering aspect about it compared to a heroine, which tends to have a community aspect to it. There's something that's going to make him put him on top of the world 
And she's looking towards something that's more, that tends to be more encompassing. And now I wish I had my little handout that I have. <laughs> but yeah, there is a difference. It's that motivation and it's how emotion plays into their arc. Mm-hmm. That really is the difference. And I, I love following that for the female main character. I think that's so interesting. I, I'm going to butcher it now because I don't remember the author, but there is a book called The Heroine's Journey. Yes, by Gail Carriger. There you go. See, you've got it for me. So (laughs) Gail's book, The Heroine's Journey, that's one that I've always had on my shelf because my background started in film and then it moved into publishing. So I very much was rooted and understood Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. But there are differences, I think. And I think that the more time that you spend with a female lead, you start to see those differences, which it makes sense. You know, our experiences are different. Also, how... Again, it's how they're motivated. The hero's initial journey tends to be motivated externally, and the heroine's journey tends to be sort of pushed into action internally. What gets her to make that step and and act on the inciting incident tends to be more internal. Mm-hmm. I love those stories because that's where it's the emotional journey and the emotional journey that still has to have plot. We still need a plot. We still need to challenge yes, the that- emotional journey. Yes, that becomes a huge part of coaching, too, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of writers either put one or the other on the page, especially in a first draft. Yeah, I agree. Frequently, it's the external. This mm-hmm. happens, this happens, this happens. And I find a lot of my work as a coach is to take them away from just the camera view. Yes. And underneath. It's great that this happened, but what meaning is the character making of it? Why is it important to them? If you and I walk into the same room, we would notice different things because of who we are and what's happened to us. And I will always notice if there's food cooking, somebody else will always notice, you know, how it's decorated or if there's a lot of family pictures because they grew up with none. All those things I want to see. If you describe the room to me, I want to know why it's important to this character that that's what they see. Yes. So in coaching, that's frequently something we do is get that next level to get them both together because that's what will keep the reader turning pages. I know it's what keeps me turning pages. So definitely, I (laughs) agree with you 100%. And that's a great place to talk about the book that we're going to discuss today. We're going to analyze the first chapter of The Wedding Date by Jasmine Guillory. And very much, Alexa is a strong female who is going to lead this story. So it's going Mm -hmm. to be a heroine's journey. You picked this book when we were discussing some titles that we could do for analysis. I'd love to know why this book for you and how did it connect with you on that emotional level? It's interesting. I came to this book a little late. It had already gotten popular and Jasmine had other books out in the series and I've been doing other things. I'm like, I've got to move this one up my you know, to be read, I'd say pile, but it's more like an entire bookcase. So I, I dove into it and had good feelings going in just because she'd already had such a solid fan base and she had growing fan base, which to me is usually a good indication of something I'm going to like. And I love Alexa. I love her from the beginning. She's relatable. She's got sort of that immediate, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but she's got that immediate scene goal. Got to get to my sister and I need to warn her before I get there because I know my sister, she's always running late. So, you know, <laughs> She's this wonderfully prepared person. I think personally, one of the things that endeared her to me was the giant bag I know she's carrying because I do. I carry a huge bag. I, I, I am Mary Poppins. I have so much stuff in my bag. I can just pull out whatever you need. So that about her endeared her to me immediately. But she's also got sort of her own mind and her own focus. And, and we already know that she's a lawyer and that she's got a, a job that she loves that maybe drives her crazy, but <laughs> and a sister who drives her crazy. But I liked her right away. And I liked sort of, I read this not that long, pandemic had started already. And so reading something that was just, I don't want to say it's fluff because it's not. Alexis' journey mm-hmm. is great, but it was just so low angst. Yes. <laughs> I needed a low angst. Well, I think that was a big reason why Chicklet became, I mean, it was popular to begin with, but Chicklet became huge in the pandemic because we needed not as stressful books. We needed something that we connect with on an emotional level, but we were having enough stress in our life. So we needed an escape. Absolutely. And this story is providing you that fun escape. One of the things the genre as a whole does too, and I've seen people try to argue with and question it, is the rule in the romance genre is... Happy Ever After, H-E-A, or H-F-N, as you'll also see, which is happily for now. So, Mm. you know, it ends, who knows what happens after the end, but it's going to end happily for this couple. And that's a guarantee in this world of so little guarantees is really wonderful. 
It's not that other genres don't have stories with strong romantic subplots, themes, and, you know, experiences that the, the characters can go through a lot romantically. But in genre romance, it's going to end happily. So at least I know that when I go in. And it becomes a challenge both as a reader and a writer. As a writer of romance, my readers know exactly how the book's going to end, but I have to keep them engaged. Jasmine does that beautifully. And that's what makes each story so unique, right? I've talked about this with some editors and some other book coaches lately. And the question of, you know, basically what's going to happen at the end of the story. So then really why the reader is engaging is because they want to know how it gets to that place, why it's going to get to that place. Security of it being a, being a happily ever after doesn't mean that the story, like you said, is fluff, but you can have a happy ending and still have a really emotionally driven and conflicting story as you go through the plot events. If you don't have conflict, then you don't have a story that's moving forward anyway. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. With no trajectory. This is where some of the craft of writing has to come in. You can't just, this happened, this ha that's our lives. It's sort of like, you know, the, I have one of those five-year journals, or you, this happened today, this happened today. And I realized a few weeks in, I'm like, wow, life's boring on a daily basis. Yes. And then it turns out, of course, it's better life when it's boring on a daily basis. <laughs> you need to have something that's going to pull them. And frequently towards the end, you get that moment of, like, wait, how are they going to make that work? Even though you know they will. But that's the fun of it. That's the adventure. Yes. It's something with with Romance Art Podcast, you had just told me something that really struck a chord with me. You said that with romance in particular, like it doesn't have to be the best literary written work in the world to be the best selling work in the world. So I'd love for you to explore that a little bit. What do you mean by that? And why is that important sure. to keep in mind as a writer? Yeah, I, I, somebody had said that to me once. And, it, you know, we see this, the words, your know, best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author, whatever. And then people claim, well, I don't like the way it was written. It didn't mm -hmm. say it was well-written. It said it was well-selling. And there is something wonderful, especially you know, in this book and others like it, that the story just sells itself. We want to be part of Alexa's journey and, and this poor guy. Poor Drew. <laughs> it's pretty the, am I the asshole kind of, you know, right, right, right. <laughs> problem. But we're sold on her hopes and mm -hmm. her dream and her goal and her motivation. And we're caught up in her oopses and conflicts and stumbles and messes and all of that. And there's a sort of combination of seeing ourselves like, yes, this is what I would do. And mm -hmm. also the, okay, this isn't me. Thank goodness I have to go through this or whatever it is. But what sells it is that ongoing emotional pull. You root for her. And, right. and actually, and I think we'll discover this. We talked about the first chapter that I found myself rooting for Alexa from the very beginning, even if I didn't know from chapter one what her big story goal was. Exactly. And as I say that, I just want to preface too, I'm not saying that this one isn't written well, but the point of that is that I think writers can put a lot of pressure on themselves to make the line level perfect. And you should always be striving for that in the sense of the best that you can be, but you shouldn't be comparing yourself to other published authors because ultimately I call them invisible mentors. Like we have our invisible <laughs> mentors that we are working to follow in their footsteps. But also that published book has been through multiple rounds with editors. I think it's a really hard thing for writers to understand until you start writing. Right. It's hard to understand that, that what you're looking at here is drafts and drafts and drafts and drafts. You have mm -hmm. no idea what Jasmine's first draft looked like. If it looked anything, it was like right. this. I have Alexa could have even a different name at that point. I know as a writer, and I hope this will help some of your listeners, as a writer, there comes a point for me in my drafting process, I actually have to stop reading in my own genre because I'm that kind of struggly point. It's not quite coming together. The word count's slowing. I'm not quite seeing what's coming next. And if I read in my own genre, especially, all I see is their shiny, perfect, polished end result. Mm -hmm. I compare where I am in that really hard place to their happy, finished product. And I'm yep. not comparing myself to where the point where in the manuscript, they have been where I was. Right. <laughs> right. But I can't see that. So at that point, I will read a different genre, a different grade level. Right. Because we talked about this earlier too. We're always consuming story and, and other genres are also my mentors. Yes. Hearing those other voices are great. But absolutely. When I get to that point where I'm like, oh, I'll never be as good as this or this story is never going to get to this point. I'm like, oh, and now it's time to put that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. My favorite authors, I love Frederick Backman. I love Jody Pico. I love Matt Haig. The lines are music to me. The Schwab's are musical sentences to me. I really feel the emotion. 
But also those are drafts that have been, I'm sure, fine-tuned. And I'm not them. I haven't been through the experience of each book and each draft. But I think any writer will tell you it takes time and you have to be patient with yourself and you have to let yourself explore what it needs to become. So yeah, definitely. We all have our process. Some people can't even define what their process is, but we do all have some way of approaching story and letting it evolve into what it needs to be. And I've found that one book to the next doesn't have the exact same process. All the same general process, but just my characters are different. For some reason, maybe it's because they're different. They need different ways to get on the page. Right. I want to think about that. I know, right? I would wonder if I was writing one of those series that had the same hero and heroine for three books. Would each three book write the same way? I'll have to get back to you on that. But character voice, right? So it's like your character voice is going to drive the narrative in a way. Whoever that character is, you have to get to know that character intimately as an individual. And that can be challenging and take time. Well, let's go ahead and move into the analysis. I've loved hearing from you and I hope writers are listening and if they are writing in their genre, then they are adding you to their favorites list because you have some (laughs) wonderful advice already. As usual, in these first chapter deep dive analysis episodes, we will go over a summary of the first chapter, then look at the seven key questions to ask about first chapters, which comes from Paul Munet's book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And then we will zoom in and look at the scene structure on the scene analysis level where we use five commitments from the story grid. And I have some questions that I've adapted from the story grid. So I use those tools. I know that Robert McKee also uses those tools. Some fun ways to go more analytical and then originally looking at what's hitting big expectations, what's setting up those expectations for what the story actually is about. For the summary of the first chapter, this is what I have. Alexa Monroe visits her older sister, Olivia, at the Fairmount Hotel in San Francisco after her sister, Jasmine partner at her New York law firm. On her way to Olivia's room, Alexa's elevator gets stuck and she's not alone. Alexa is trapped in the elevator with a very handsome man named Drew. They flirt and talk about Drew's unfortunate situation, that he is a groomsman in his best friend's wedding, and his friend is marrying his ex-girlfriend. Plus, Drew no longer has a date to the wedding. The elevator works again, but before Drew and Alexa part from each other, Drew runs after Alexa and asks her to be his date at the wedding. Initially, Alexa hesitates, but eventually agrees, and Drew gives her his number and then runs away again down the hallway before Alexa can back out. So in a nutshell. The nutshell. That is the nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll look at big picture first. So we're going to go ahead and move into those seven key first chapter questions from Paul Munet's book. The first question deals with genre. And the question is, what kind of story is this? This is a contemporary romance. The absolute classic definition of that. It's taking place here and now with no magic being added to it. So because there are things like contemporary paranormal and things like that. This is a traditional Contemporary romance. I definitely agree. And then I always like to say and remind to readers that we can look at genre in a couple of ways. We can look at it as the commercial genre, the marketing appeal to it, which is absolutely contemporary romance. If you were to go on Amazon, if you were going to a bookstore, that's what this is. And then you can look at content genre, which is the story type. And I would say this is dominantly a love story. So a love, our external stakes here are dealing with a couple and whether or not they're going to find an intimate relationship, an intimate connection or not. And then also I like to look at what that internal arc is. And it's interesting because prior to our analysis, you were exploring the emotional journey. So I'm curious what you think is the emotional arc or the character arc or internal arc. And we might get into this when we talk about the character question. But what do you think I would probably assume from this first chapter that we're going to look at some sort of worldview change for one or more of the characters. Do you think that that's what it is? Well, I actually think, and I think what's what I find clever, because you were talking about the marketability, I think they actually put this view right there on the cover. It says love was a part of the deal. I yes. think that that says it very nicely. In other words, they're going into this with one very specific set of expectations. And of course, we, the reader, go, yeah, right. We know better than our character, you know, than the characters we're reading about at this point, that this is going to be oh so much more. Yes. So, yeah, there's that. There's that. I think it's going, you know, the characters are like, it, it's going to be this, but it's not. Absolutely. Okay. And question number two deals with plot. And the question is, what is the story really about? It's interesting. It's about facing the choices you've made and wondering if they are really supporting what it is that you want. I don't know if you're familiar with Theodore Taylor's book about universal fantasy. No, go ahead. Tell me more about it. Okay. 
Universal fantasy, and, and for listeners, it's not about fantasy as a genre. It's about the universal things that we fantasize about. When a story has those, it has a, regardless of genre, it has a more universal appeal. And one of the things that to me that is sort of, in some ways, transcends the genre of this book is that universal appeal of, am I living the life I really want? Have the decisions I've made, the choices I've made, the job I hold, where I live, do that really reflect what in my heart of hearts I want? Am mm -hmm. I willing to admit to myself what it is I really want and then possibly make the sacrifices I need to, to have what I really want? I love watching a character go through that. That's really well said, because I think that something that you had talked about previously, and we might get more into this when we talk about the character question, but Alexa is someone who is very put together. Mm -hmm. Like she would be someone who she thinks that she has it all laid out. And even in one of the lines, she talks about how she's excited to celebrate her sister, but there's something that has happened between them mm -hmm. has caused discourse in some way or distance in some way. There's and some eggshell walking. There, are, there is. There's definitely some eggshell walkings. And maybe when we get to the character question, I can find the line specifically. But we know that there's a hint of something that creates that distance. And we also know that Alexa feels like she is the younger sister who has to keep her older sister in line a little bit because she's giving her a heads up because she assumes that she's going to be late and she laughs out loud when her sister says that she's just getting into the shower. You can see that Alexa, she's not malicious in these ways, but she definitely has her life in order. So anything that would throw off her plan would be unexpected in a way that would challenge her internal arc as well. Absolutely. And so this is not a woman who wants bumps in the road. She appears, at least as we're beginning, and this is one of the, you know, sort of the odd things about getting stuck in an elevator, as a woman who's got things pretty under control. She mm -hmm. anticipates, she plans, she's organized, and yep. that's who she is at the beginning. And then it refers back to, of course, what is the story really about? It wasn't part of the plan, right? Love wasn't part of the plan. So we are going to, on an external scale or anything that is surrounding or driving plot, is probably going to be related to the relationship between her and this new strange man that she meets in the elevator and the one that she is going to agree to go on a date to a wedding to. Not just a date, folks. The woman's going to jump into a rehearsal dinner. I know. It's huge. <laughs> and I, that's, but that's part of the things that makes this the hook of this Absolutely. story as well, right? This isn't just a date with low stakes. This is a date with high stakes because it means that you're going to be introduced to multiple people. Is it called The Wedding Date, the movie? That I'm forgetting which one. There's a, there's a movie. There is. Called... That's the yeah. Deborah Messing. Deborah yes. Moran. Yeah. Well, I love that movie. And I think that, that, again, like why that situation is so interesting is because when you go to a wedding, there are multiple people that are important in someone's life that you're going mm -hmm. to run into and have to introduce. And you're probably feeling like you're on on the stage all the time. You have to a little bit put on a show. But at the same time, if your heart starts to unravel in different ways, it's going to be harder and harder to do. You just said, you know, how it feels. It, this, that's the thing. It's, it ups the vulnerability potential, which as readers or viewers, we want. We want to see these characters in not the, so much the worst possible situation, but the most emotional charged situation, you know, definitely. It'd be like meeting his parents on the first date. You know, it's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And we're dealing with an ex-girlfriend and he doesn't date anyone since this, this woman that is getting married. Like there are some skeletons in the closet or eggshells. I like the way I like what you said. There's <laughs> eggshells yes. for sure. Okay, great. And the third question deals with point of view. And the question is, who is telling the story? This is not uncommon in modern romance novels. It's dual point of view, dual POV. So we are in the hence for both Alexa and for Drew. We start with Alexa. I was actually really surprised when I went back to read it and realized that we get Drew's point of view very short. Very shortly. I'm glad you pointed this out. I, wanted I to thought talk that about was it. fascinating yeah. because... Generally speaking, I know when I write, I tend to stick to one point of view per chapter. And if I don't, if because it's just too connected and it works better or they're both shorter, I'll put mm -hmm. them in one. But hers is, I would say, 80 percent, maybe more. And his is just this blip. And so for some reason, the author decided she wanted us to be in his head when this change happens. And I thought that was kind of neat. I think uh, that change was important for the reader to feel connected to the story. I do. I do. I, I think, you know, it's funny as a reader, I was just like, oh, cool. And you read right on. As a writer, I can't help but stop and say, OK, why did she want us to see Drew making this decision and not just him 
calling out to Alexa and her making the decision. The truth is, in that, that moment, he had bigger emotional stake. He was the one putting himself out on a limb, just kind of going against half the monkeys chattering in his head, going, okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm not going to overthink it. I'm just going right. to do it. We needed to be in there with him. Right. Yeah. And, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't think it's uncommon for there to be dual POV in romance novels. See? Very common since right. How I want to say like the late 80s, early 90s. If you look at older romances, you'll still only see, you'll only see her point of view. Yeah. And then the duel started to show up. But I want to say Nora Roberts was one of the first to do it. Mm-hmm. Peter's just went, we talked earlier about selling. It sold the story more. The readers yeah. realized, oh, wait, I want to hear what he is thinking. That's the other that we get from those books. When you're dealing with a story that has longing in relationships, there are always two sides to every story, right? Yeah. So I think that emotionally, for even to just feel sympathetic for the characters as they're going mm-hmm. through their journeys, that's going to bring you closer. And it doesn't mean that it has to be in first person. This one is written mm-hmm. in third person, but we do feel like it's third person close. I would say switching, alternating between those POVs. And yes. like you said, dominantly Alexa, but we do get hints and sprinkles of Drew. You know, it's interesting. I just led a book club analyzing Ugly Love by Colin Hoover. And in that case, it is also dual POV. But I think if you took out its two characters in the male is named Miles, I think if you took out Miles, this character, there's a chance that you might not like him as much because a lot of Miles's arc is dealing with this hidden past and understanding why he refuses to love anyone. So there is benefit to that. Of course, in something like Ugly Love, it's a past and present timeline. We're in the wedding date. We are staying in present tense. We are in the story present throughout the story. And this is something author Seller taught, mentioned in our training. And I thought, I love this, is thinking about where the narrator is. You know, sometimes you read a book and the narrator is like, let me tell you a story. You know that the narrator's been through this already. In this, there's an immediacy. And this is true for most romance. I can't come up with something off the top of my head where it's not. But we're with the characters as they go through it, as they they fall in love, as they mess up, as they misunderstand all of those pieces. And I think that's one thing the readers of it. Yeah. And you know, it's going to end happily ever after. But you don't know how hard it's going to become before it becomes happy. So I think that's interesting. And yeah, I'm really glad that you brought it up. If you were to go into your text, let me see. There is a page break, but it's only the last one, two, really like three pages total. So it's a full chapter. And then the last three pages you switch yeah, he's to got a, a, In the print version, he's got a page and a half. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. You know, I'm on the Kindle version. It's just so interesting. It is just a little blip at the end. Mm-hmm. And I would talk about this when we move into the scene structure analysis part of this conversation. But I see it as one scene. Even though you switch point of views, I think we're still in one scene. I think that we're still following Alexa. And the question that she has to face, the greatest question she has to face is actually in the section where Drew comes to her at the very right. end. So it's really interesting because you have so much buildup between the two of them. And then what happens is that they part ways. And in this last moment, Drew has to run back and ask her. It's just really interesting why she would include that. Why do you think she included it? I think we needed to see, I think she wanted to tie us to Drew early. Mm -hmm. She's bonded us to Alexa. We like her. I liked Mm -hmm. her at the very beginning, which is why it was safe to actually not be in her head when the question is asked. I've seen enough of her and all the thoughts she's had going through her head of, oh, should I get his number? Should I try to talk more? Or, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to a cute guy and, you know, not totally tripping over my tongue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we know enough about her to know what her answer will be. It makes sense to us. She's given us enough that when when Alexa responds, we're not shocked. But by giving us Drew for a little bit, we now get a little of his motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, he has come off as being kind of funny and cavalier and no, wait to hear how bad my situation is. It's terrible and it's worth cheese and crackers. And we like him. By switching the POV, now we care. Mm-hmm. See his struggle. He's yes, exactly. Like, oh, God, she sees a perfect guy with smooth lines and stuff like that. And that's what we've seen so far. Yeah. Even and I think the situation stinks. And now we see the imperfect. Exactly. And I think that's I'm just going to read from the text here. The first internal piece that we're pulled into his point of view, the first line. It says, Alexa, wait, this was crazy. Drew knew objectively that what he was about to do was crazy. But as she turned to walk away, he shouted for her to stop a split second later. So it's like he knows that we're seeing this. He doesn't have a game here. There's no ulterior motive. He is really, really nervous about this wedding weekend. 
And right before that page break, Drew talks about how he's afraid that he's just going to get drunk. He doesn't have a date. He's going to empty seat. He's going to be dating bourbon and he's going to hit on some bridesmaid and be an idiot, you know? But what I like about him is that, and I guess this kind of moves us into our question four, so we can move into there. What I like when he says that is that he doesn't want to be sloppy and a jerk. So he's nervous. He does care about how he behaves at this wedding and he cares enough about the friends, even though it's hard for him to see his best friends and his ex-girlfriend get married. He doesn't want to ruin that. And that is a good segue into question number four, which does focus on character. And the question is, which character should readers care about the most? It's Alexa. She's the one that's that's everything's happening to. Even when we switched POV, as you said, he's asking her. It's still happening yes. to her. He's the one making the decision that propels the story forward. She said, no, this would be a 12-page, really short, not happy story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't qualify as a romance, wouldn't qualify as an all. So it's her decision there that keeps us going. What do you like about her from that first chapter? I do love her giant bag of stuff. I don't know yes. if you ever watched the series The Closer. She was another character who just always had this giant bag. And there was I mean, it's fitting a full bottle of champagne and cheese and crackers. So and it's definitely a large bag. Yeah. This is probably bigger than one I carry. Which and is she's checking on it repetitively. Like these, we need to protect these cheese and crackers and champagne for her sister. So yeah, it's kind of like that. I mean, and it's not just the bag. It's the prepared. It's the, you know, thinking forward of her. I'm celebrating with my sister and I need to bring the stuff to celebrate with. You know, we're going to and we're going to have the right things to celebrate with. And, mm-hmm. and you mentioned we know that this is not quite a relationship. And as you as you pointed out, that Drew's ship is really, really towards the end. The hint about her sister is very, very at the beginning. It's the, on a printed version, not even at the bottom of page one, just towards the bottom of page one. Alexa couldn't wait to celebrate with her older sister, despite no, maybe because. Their relationship was still tricky after all these years. Mm-hmm. So she's already a little nervous and, and stuff like that. I cared about her before Drew even walked in and before I she did too. I want her to have a good time with her sister. I want it to go well. There's just a, a familiarity. It's like, you know her, like you've met her probably. She's probably in the next cubicle from you or she's someone you've had coffee with and stuff. There's a familiarity that I liked about her right away. And then because we know she's doing these things that are caring for her sister and their relationship. It also makes sense that when Drew says, asks what he asks, she says, sure. She is somebody who's, who would do that. Right. Right. I think that's a good example of how you've set up her character. So it makes sense when she does say yes, because Mm -hmm. he is a complete stranger. And like we said, I think it would be easy to say yes to go on a date. I don't think it's so easy to say yes to go to a rehearsal dinner and a whole weekend as a date. That's a Mm -hmm. completely different type of situation. I agree with you. I really like Alexa and how she cares so much about her sister that she's really dressed up. She's prepared. She wished that she had been able to bake brownies because you know, Olivia loves brownies. So like she really does care about her sister, despite whatever this mysterious thing is that you assume you're going to have come out later in the storyline. Something has happened, but she still has put her past event has happened aside in order for her to celebrate her sister and make her sister feel special and proud of herself. And and she is really designated that entire night in the plans that she has in order to celebrate her in that way. And that's sweet. Then I really liked her quirkiness and, you know, really, I guess, nervousness <laughs> talking to him. There's a line in there somewhere like, hot guy and funny. What did I win the lottery? Something like that. But you can tell she doesn't usually find herself in these situations where she feels this sense of vulnerability. And of course, she's trapped in an elevator. So... <laughs> There's yeah. nothing to do but either trip on your own tongue or have it go smoothly. It's a man she didn't even notice at first. That was the when I first started to like her. She's very focused on getting to this and doing this, that the lights go off and when they come back on, that's when she notices him. And she's like, were you there the whole time? It's a sort of like, yeah, I could see myself doing that or I can see mm-hmm. somebody doing that. And that's the kind of thing we want to see early in a book is right? that recognition and why we like them. I do get the feeling that if he'd asked her for the date for some reason for that night, she would have said no because mm-hmm. she had this commitment. Said, That's she right. Would never back out on that. We know that even just this one quick chapter, she would not have said yes to him if he needed her that night. Right. Even when she starts to hesitate at the end, whether or not she's going to do it or not. Let me see. I can find the text real quick of that. But he asks her and he says, you wouldn't be free this weekend, would you? How long is your sister in town? No turning back now. And then she says, she leaves tomorrow after her deposition. I'm working on Saturday. I have an event on Saturday. What about Saturday night? Even Friday night? Oh, please let her be free now that he'd gone that far. Well, I have to be my date this weekend, please. 
The wedding isn't until Saturday night, so that would work, right? If you can't do Friday night, I understand. But if there's any way you could come to the rehearsal dinner with me, I would. I don't know what I would do. Really appreciate it. Buy you all the cheese you wanted. (laughs) How did he go from zero to babbling and pleading with this woman in 30 seconds flat? So it's just so interesting because you can see he's probably talking feverishly, like I have to get her to say yes to me. But she, because we have had so much set up with Alexa, we can, exactly like you said, we can see that she probably has already knows the days that she's going to say no to. So it's not going to be this night with her sister. It's not going to be anything probably that interferes with work, even if she had something like that. But I think that when he tries to bribe her in the sense of, this will be the, like, if you need to do a good deed, you already have checked it off in May. Like, <laughs> good for the year. And, but I, I think love his wheedling. Yes. But, but she would say yes to it anyway because of her sense of character. And she would see him fumbling over himself and feel probably he's a nice guy. I've got to know him a little bit. What's the worst going to be? And of right. course, that is like the beginning of the unraveling, I'm sure. So, <laughs> And I, I do. I care about Drew as well in this first chapter. I think that when we switch to his point of view, it pulls us even closer. I feel bad for him when he talks about his wedding date, but I actually care about him when we see just how nervous he actually is. He goes from adorable to endearing. It's just you know, one is more surface and one's like, oh, that's sweet. And then the next is like, oh, wow. wow. Yep. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Great. All right. So question number five, that was question number four in character. Question number five is on setting. And the question is, where and when does the story take place? Now in California, we start in San Francisco and then we're going to move out of San Francisco and move around for the wedding and stuff like after the wedding. Mm -hmm. But yep, we are in present day California. Yep. And specifically, we're at that Fairmont Hotel where Drew happens to be staying in the same not only hotel, but floor as Olivia. That's right. (laughs) Okay, and question number six is core emotion. How should readers feel about what's happening? You know, we, we talked about this a little bit, that it's, there's, a, there's a lightness to this. It's sort of hopeful and amused. There's, you know, her quirks meeting up with his quirks, meeting up with a stranded elevator, which I have to say, it's a quote-unquote gimmick. The elevator traps two people in it. And I, when it first happened, I'm like, really? And it didn't last long. And I was really kind of grateful for that. We've all read the books or seen the movies or something just drags on. But she says that the hotel has a generator that shouldn't take long. Guess what? It doesn't take long. (laughs) It's like, good. Thank you. I appreciate that. They do break into the cheese and crackers, but still not all that long. So, yeah, we're just we're kind of hopeful for these two. There's definitely chemistry. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, he's charming and handsome. And even though she feels like she's over speaking and saying all the wrong things, we can see that, no, she's also equally endearing and that he's kind of liking her too. Yeah. And I love the chemistry. It's so interesting showing the different situation between if you were trapped in an elevator with someone who you did not get along with or someone who Mm -hmm. seemed a little intimidating in some ways, how that would completely change the emotion that not only the protagonist would be feeling, but also the readers. And in this, Jasmine does a really amazing job at making sure that we're feeling comfortable and fun and excited. I want them to get together. Clearly, there's a spark there. You know, this might go down a roller coaster of awkwardness, but it clearly is a spark. So there's something there that is worth exploring. And you get that all from this tight enclosed space in an elevator as we start. The ultimate forced proximity. The ultimate forced proximity, for sure. Okay, question number seven. The final question in the seven key first chapter questions is about stakes. And the question is, what are the stakes and why should readers care about what happens next? You know, generally, I mean, don't get me wrong, we, we talked about this. Being somebody's wedding date is not necessarily low stakes, but it's an overall inciting incident. This is a pretty low stakes book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a date. If it goes wrong for both of them, it's still not going to be even remotely close to the end of the world. Right. <laughs> oh, right. But, you know, it's, it's she's probably a little out of her comfort zone to say ends. Yeah. He's clearly out of his and thinks he's out of his mind to, to do this too. Right. But, but that's sort of the fun. That is probably why we care about what happens next is because it's an unexpected moment. You know, it's not like either one of them woke up in the morning and go, you know what I need to do today? Certainly didn't check into the hotel thinking, I have to find a date before I leave. Right. Right. I think it just happened to be, oh, this girl I'm connecting with. And I think that maybe 
we could have fun, you know, and I'd have security blanket there. So I know. So it's, but it's so interesting because when we talk about stakes, I do think I agree with you. We don't feel like it's high stakes in the sense of we have physical stakes on the table and we're dealing with life or death, which you don't need those high stakes in order to hook readers. And that was one of the big things. What is hooking readers? Why does it get us to turn the page? Which essentially is in a first chapter and in any chapter, really, the goal, get them to turn the page. And out of that, I do think there are stakes of intimacy of your heart on the line in a way they don't feel super vibrant and strong in this first chapter because, yes, ultimately, these are just two people who are getting along. It seems like if it didn't go well, that you could probably just call it a weekend and rub your hands and be done with it. But I'm sure as the story (laughs) unfolds, that the more that we feel romantically inclined towards this person, that the stakes are going to be raised as you go through the plot. And I think ultimately that's what we need to remember as writers. There's an intensity scale that goes through scenes and you don't need an intense scene every single scene. Actually, if you were to do that, it would feel redundant and you would take away from the zest and spice and importance of these higher stakes scenes. And exhausting. Exhausting. It's not enjoyable at all. I mean, yeah, I'm sure your readers, those of you who are listening, both readers and writers, you've read something going, oh, my God, not again. Yeah, exactly. Or can we we just get through this? And there's something wonderful about this icing sort of feeling of, oh, you know, she's already having a good day. He's kind of having a miserable day. She's just improved his day and he's just made her day kind of interesting, even more interesting. So, yeah, I think more importantly than anything, and this is something as a writer we have to consider, certainly in revision, it's the right place to start. We right. didn't need to start earlier in Alexa's day. We surely don't want to start later than this, but it's such a great place to start. This is when the stakes are clear but low. I think that's so interesting because it seems like we, there is a bit of the conversation between the two of them where Alexa jokes to Drew about, oh, you must have done something bad to have her mm-hmm. for that breakup. So we don't really know drew enough to see where that is so it feels like the stakes are actually higher for drew in this scene on whether or not she says yes or no uh-huh. because he's going to be the one who ends up at an empty table where he's afraid he's going to drink bourbon and ruin his whole image and reputation we know that that's going along and those are really psychological stakes right yes. he's dealing with some internal emotional psychological stakes for alexa you know, I, I like to use James Scott Bell's. I think that there are three major whiff of death stakes that are in every novel. It's psychological, physical, and professional. Yep. So it's really interesting because when I'm looking at this and I'm trying to debate what are the dominant stakes for Alexa, I call love stakes physical stakes, but I think that they're intimately tied to psychological stakes as well. So it's like right now, I, as we said before, it doesn't feel like the world will end if she says no or if she says yes. But I do think that we get a sense of some psychological stakes going on and that she'd probably feel guilty. Maybe she'd feel like she would regret not saying yes, because right before he chases after her, she does think to herself, ah, what could I have done to have continued this conversation? I agree. I think it's the regret one that's really that that's that would have been the big one for her. She's not usually a we already get the feeling that these sort of sudden happy happenstances don't occur for her. This is kind of a new situation. And yes, there's a part of her that thinks if I say no, I'm going to regret it. We're going to regret it, obviously. Right, right. If you can get your reader to think, say yes, say yes. And I think Jasmine does succeed with that. Absolutely. Even and though we she's going to say yes. There's a little voice in her head that goes, come say it, Alexa, say it. Like you said, that's the total goal of what this contemporary romance is and how we're working. Mm-hmm. Like we want them to get together. And if you were to say what the physical stakes are, which I do think those are the love stakes, you have to gain an intimate relationship with someone, you have to lose a broken heart. On its grander scale, we understand, even if not in the scene context, it's not in your face that that's what it is right now. We understand that that's where it's going because we picked up a romance novel and that's the expectation and it satisfied that expectation. Well, that's a wonderful breakdown of the seven key first chapter questions. So now we will zero in. We're going to go take a look at the scene analysis. And to do this, we use three questions that I have adapted from the Story Grid scene analysis template. So I've just changed the wording a bit. And then we use the five commandments to actually break down the structure of the scene and to determine if it is a well-structured scene or not. The first question, we're looking at it before, and I've already given the synopsis of the scene, the summary of the scene. And I've also said that we both agree 
that this is one scene, one chapter, even though there is a page break and we shift to Drew's POV. To do that, we are going to be following Alexa's perspective, I think, right? Like Alexa is going to drive the five commandments. Thinking along the lines of that, the first question that I'd like to ask you is, what are the characters? What do you think they are literally doing? And how do you think that changes from beginning to end? And just for listeners out there, literal is literal. On the most literal <laughs> level, on the most literal level, what is the reader seeing? This is strangers getting on an elevator. He's not actually on the elevator to do anything other than go to his room. She's actually got a little more purpose in this moment. But they are both there to get somewhere else. For the heart and core and majority of this scene, we're stuck on an elevator. So it's Alexa and Drew who are stuck on this and forced to talk with each other. And I guess they're not really forced because they willingly engage, but they probably wouldn't have engaged if the elevator hadn't frozen in place. And basically Alexa is forced to turn around and notice that Drew is there. So Drew has noticed her. Alexa has not noticed that Drew is there until the elevator stops. On a, a value shift or to identify that change and remember if you are new as a listener, we're not looking for a one shoe fits all perfect wording to describe a change. I always like to say, give yourself permission to just throw out phrases if you need to. It's more, can you clearly say that there is a change in value? Because if you can't, if you can't even see that there's a change that you can defend, then something is wrong in the scene. Something is off, I'll say is off. There's something missing. Yeah. Right, there's something missing. So for a value change on the literal level that I had, I said it could be something like unattached to committed, or it could be strangers to acquaintances, because on the most literal level, I think that's how readers see the scene has changed. Would you agree with that or anything Absolutely. different? Absolutely. That should become a fairly well-known phrase. This is the meet cute. Yes. It has to happen. Different writers will put, put it in different places. It usually doesn't happen, I would say, not more than 10% in. You can spend a chapter with them separate before they're sure. wide. More and more often, you see it happen fairly fast. I know as a writer, I usually have it by the end of the first chapter, if not sooner. This was incredibly fast. This was and I was impressed, actually, by how fast she did it. But yeah, it's a very important change is that stranger to, hey, who are you? And right. an intrigue. It's, it's from, you know, disinterest to curiosity. Absolutely. And I think that it is also the inciting incident of the story when these two are, when she's going to get asked on this date and she says yes to it. Yes. So it does. It happens quickly. I like that you say exactly where you place it as you're in your own writing. And I always tell writers, you need it by at least chapter three. If you haven't gone it by chapter three, something is off with the pacing. And that's probably not... start of the book in the wrong spot. Right. And that's, <laughs> and that's not just romance. I see that as any story. You need right. your inciting incident by chapter three. When I worked as an editorial intern at a literary agency, they asked for the first three chapters before they asked for the full manuscript. And I think there was a reason for that. So you can pretty much tell the pace and how it's going and if it's an appropriate pace for the story. Question two, and this is a dominant question that I use to identify the five commandments, and it's about the character. So we're taking the character's perspective now, and we want to ask ourselves, what is the character's goal or what does the character want to achieve or want in the scene in general? And how does that want change or how they go about trying to get the want from beginning to end? So we're following Alexa, right? What does Alexa want at the very beginning? To see Olivia. Yep. <laughs> she is there to, to see her sister. That's, that's it. She and her champagne and wheel of cheese are there to, to see Olivia. I really like that it's established pretty clearly. Opening paragraph, really, mm -hmm. is that she's here to see her sister. And like you've mentioned before, Rona, about all the ideas of She's very pre-planned. She wants to make this night special for Olivia. She's prepared all of these things to make sure that the plan goes accordingly. And here we are, of course, with the five commandments when we get into that really work because we understand what Alexa's goal is and why that would be offset by the inciting incident of the scene and how the scene unfolds. For a change on the emotional level, on the psychological level, I said a value change because of what happens. Maybe the scene changes in a way from excited to see her sister to nervous but excited about being Drew's date. Definitely. She sort of got the one thing she almost doesn't want, which is yeah. change and a little bit of possibility. She, we don't know yet how she deals with that, but we're pretty sure it's, just, it's not her MO. <laughs> yeah. But he's too cute and too sweet, and she's a bit of a helper. So you can see she's just, she's available She's going to say yes. Like you said, she's not someone who her feet are so cemented in the ground that she's unwilling to be immovable. I yes. think it's this idea of what's fun about Alexa is that she isn't this severely flawed character. She has 
something that is worth changing and evolving because of the situation. But we don't always have to have this completely flawed character in order to have fun and turn the pages and engage your readers. Exactly. The third question, how does the change in the scene impact the big picture, particularly the main value shifts? When I'm doing this, I go back and I think about the main genre, the content genre. And in this case, content genre and commercial genre are very close in what they are. What is the main value that we see moving in this scene? And if you were to summarize the idea of how the scene impacts the big picture, what would that be? And you've touched upon this just a second ago. So it might just be reiterating. Yeah, it yeah. changes everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As yeah. you said, they were, we've gone from strangers to acquaintances and then immediately from acquaintances to date, which is part of what makes it fun. And hey, this doesn't happen in real life. So yay, I'm in a book and I'm happy not to be in the real world kind of feeling about it. This is what's going to get us rolling on, yeah. on the relationship, which is the center of this book. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the idea, again, you can say something for words. This could be strangers to dates or interested to obligated or, you know, strangers curious to committed. Yeah, curious <laughs> committed. It's like all those things. I think that if you were to say what is the main value shift, the big picture would be dealing with love stakes. So ultimately on that scale of we're not together to together. And even though you said at the end of these stories, it could just be we're together for right now. But we mm -hmm. need to see that we have moved towards something worth intimacy. And more than just attraction, it yes. has to be moving towards that intimate relationship. When you think in terms of, it's a very short, it's not a very long chapter. And if you are to, to literally clock it, and I'm using the word literally literal, just like Abigail, <laughs> it's not very long. Not For a lot sure. of time has passed, but both of them have made some big decisions. Yes. He yes. has decided to ask her. She has decided he's not a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true. <laughs> so, and that she's willing to take, it's not even a little risk. She's willing to take a bit of a risk mm -hmm. to join him. She's couched it in the, I'm saving you from yourself, you know. But it's still a little bit of a potential emotional risk to walk in and be his date in this vulnerable making situation. It's definitely a vulnerable situation. I mean, how many of us love going to an event where absolutely, we know absolutely no one. Oh my gosh, I hate so The person we're with. Yeah. She's saying yes to a guy she barely knows to right. be in a situation where she knows no one no one and has no idea what they're even like she's walking into a complete out of her norm yeah. there's really unlimited potential for what this could be so this could be a disaster it could it could be a disaster <laughs> okay now that we've answered those questions that can be really important to help us understand what we're going to choose as the five commandments and the five commandments are these elements of plot that can help us understand why a story moves forward and why the story moves forward because a character has made a decision to move that plot forward. Yep. So the first of these is the inciting incident. And an inciting incident is a causal or coincidental unexpected disturbance. So basically this disturbance is either going to create or establish the character's want for the scene or throw off and force them to change directions and how they're going to achieve that want. We talked about Alexis' want in this book, in this scene initially is see Olivia, right? Have Get to her sister, have fun with the sister. What do you see as the unexpected disturbance or the incending incident that challenges that? Well, first the elevator stops. I was not on for Alexis' to-do list. And we have no idea how long it's going to stop for. And nope. there's a mystery man in the elevator and that we, she didn't We notice. are not alone. We are not alone. But luckily we have champagne and cheese and crackers, so... <laughs> prepared ones yes and we had the red shoes on you know so we're we all good we look fabulous. oh my god and it's really not a universal fantasy that when we meet a guy i woke up like this okay, right? show I was hands listeners because i can see you <laughs> how many of you have run into your ex and look great at the time oh it happens and when you run into the cute guy you have just like you've got your hair in the messy bun you've thrown right. on the it never really happens that way or it doesn't seem to so that's such a great little endearing fantasy she looks fabulous mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she's like okay good <laughs> glad that she can carry the conversation in not an awkward way which she does also achieve but yes <laughs> And of course, between the inciting incident and the turning point, that sometimes the turning point can be called the turning point of progressive complication. There's a variety of complications that are spaced between the inciting incident. And ultimately, I say the turning point is the moment where the character is forced into a crisis question or a crisis decision or a crisis of any sort, a dilemma of some sort. So basically, a crisis cannot be ignored. It's a best mm -hmm. bad choice or reconcilable goods decision, the inverse of a best bad choice. 
And to even ignore it leads to consequences. The turning point in this scene, what is that pivotal conflict that forces Alexa into a crisis? He asks her out. And if the inciting incident is the elevator stopping, and if they just both went their separate ways, then again, we're out of story. So to make story continue, as you said, we need this this turning point and she's just been asked out. Yes. And what I like to point out in this scene is that there's quite a bit of material before that moment. Yeah. Once the, from turning point to resolution is like, right. Our next four points happen really fast. Four they do. Really fast. They do. And, you know, it's interesting because turning point crisis, often you're not literally writing out the crisis on the page that comes off as flat writing. So not often are you going to be, they debated between this and this. Like, no, it needs to yes, be movie, understood. You'll see like the devil and angel show up on her shoulder. Right, exactly. You're not trying to spell it out for the readers, but it's implied because we understand the situation in the context that you have worked up to this moment, this pivotal moment in decision. That is obvious. What was so interesting is that it actually occurs after the point of view shift when we're in Drew and Drew is asking her. So it's really interesting because we're no longer in that limited POV. We've shifted to Drew's POV. So we don't even see Alexa debating about it, but we understand Alexa and why this would be a debate. Because for the crisis, I had something as the crisis in the sense of should she commit to a date with a stranger even though he is particularly handsome, or should she take the time to get to know him more before committing to such a high-stakes date? And I have commitments. I have my sister that I'm celebrating. I have some other stuff going on this weekend. Is it worth doing this? And I think you made a really good point. We've spent so much time in Alexa's point of view that even though these happen both fast and in his point of view, we can trust what happens. In other words, she hasn't been sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I can't wait to get out. This is too right. uncomfortable. Right. And then she doesn't do like a 180 and say yes to the date. She's already leaning towards wishing this could last a little longer. And so when this happens, she's already been leaning into it without even realizing it. We're comfortable with her response. It doesn't come out of the blue. It doesn't shock us. We're glad she did. We don't need her internal monologue. We can almost, we, well, you can hear. We can right. infer it. Exactly. And that tells... That tells me as a reader and as a writer that Jasmine did her job right. And for the internal things going on in Alexis' head while we're injured. Right. Having to spell it out is pretty boring. So if you confer it, then you've done your job. Absolutely. And like you said, these do happen really close. So you have turning point crisis and climax. The climax is the direct action that a character takes in order to answer their crisis decision. When I started out doing this analysis... I would write a lengthy climax because I think that I'd have to explain this lengthy play out of how the climax builds. Then I realized, wait a second, the climax is actually just the direct decision. And the resolution is everything that falls after the climax and shows really where the characters are at and how the value shift has completely changed from beginning to end. So in this case, the climax is just Alexa answering. She says yes. She says yes. And, and then you the know resolution. What? That is the ultimate inciting incident. You know, every... For the writers listening, that is what makes the inciting incident. The character yes. says, yes. 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 And, and then the resolution. It's a very literal one. They it it is. She, she, she specifically says, I'll do it. That's, you know, and that is the, that's what we want our characters to be saying. I'll do it. Yes, absolutely. And the readers are saying, good. I want to see this happen. <laughs> <I'm not ready. laughs> I am here for watching you go through this. Yes. As absolutely. long as I don't have to be the one attending this wedding. <laughs> I like to be the fly in the walls. And then the resolution is where the characters are after this. So everything that falls after the climax. Now, the resolution. Her kind of stunned silence. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, what what happens is like Drew literally says, here's my number and then runs. Because he doesn't want her to back out of it and say no. Oh, it's not, that's so, how it ends. It's if he sped down the hall with his suitcase, not giving her a chance to back out. Yes. And in some cases, it will happen really tightly here at the end. In order to have that be successful, you can't just have fluff or nothing happening in between all those moments. You need to have interesting things going on. The dialogue in this first chapter in particular is what carries the interest level between the, the inciting incident and the turning point. I think we're really getting to know the characters, the characters and the dialogue and how it's shaped that, along with the internal reflection of pulling us into Alexa and where she is as a human being and how the situation is impacting her. So make sure that if you do have a scene that is gapped out with more time in between the commandments like this and they're tightly wrapped up, that it's not just fluff or nothing. 
no substance in between. It has to still be moving the story forward to really building the stakes up to this moment. We're expecting this to be the end of the scene, right? And I think the other thing I like to say is that, of course, that's not the only way of doing a scene. The five commandments don't exist in a perfect percentages. There's not a perfect place to place them. It's just a matter of they need to exist on the page in order to show how a character is forced to make a crisis decision. And because of that, the story does move forward in some way. So I always like to reemphasize that. Just like I always say, I don't think there's one way to writing. These are editing tools that I have used to help understand when I think a story is well-structured. But there's a variety of writing sources and of writing resources and knowledge out there. And ultimately, I think you have to figure out what helps you as a writer and what helps you as an editor and how you can fuse the two of them so that you can produce the best manuscript possible. Absolutely. If you get to the end of your, if you finished your manuscript and by all means, finish your manuscript. The mm-hmm. number of unfinished books out there is, is, is you could weep. <laughs> Yes. You know, you've got the story, tell the whole story. But when you go back to look at it, if something is missing or something doesn't feel right or it's not hitting you, like you're not feeling moved through your own scene or chapter, this that's a great place to look at these. You're like, yes. well, what, if you can't answer for yourself, well, what gets the scene going and what's the decision and where is a change and so that, then start to thread it in. The chances, and and when when I t- and I tell this to to my writing clients, I'm like, yeah, I'm not necessarily suggesting you rewrite a whole scene. Truthfully, sometimes it can be as little as a line, right? Just one or two sentences that just kind of brings that out. Yeah. So one of the things Jasmine does so well is that we have a conversation going, but we have what I always think of is and what I always think of as the second conversation. There's the one we have with the person, and then there's the one that's going on in our head. Absolutely. And Jasmine does a great job of showing us the conversation that Alexa's having with Alexa while she's having her conversation with Drew. Yes. And that's what's allowing us to know her and see what's making her her wheels turn. Oh, I think it's so important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with you so much. And I have also found the same thing when I work with writers and in my own writing. It's really easy to get plot out. And I, I say that lightly. It's not really easy to get plot out. We have to, right. Not, that's a false statement, actually. It's hard to get plot out. We have to be creative. We need to know where the story's going. And that's really challenging. But I think that it's, it's once you have plot structured out, you know where you're going with it. But to bring the story to life and to connect with readers on an emotional level, you cannot sacrifice character and pulling us into the internal journey, that emotional journey of what the character's experiencing as they go through the motions of the plot. The character is what's really going to probably linger and stick with us and be how theme is presented and things like that. And then the plot is going to move the story forward. I say they're married together. They cannot be separated. They, they have to we go together. to see that change. We're not here to see somebody drink coffee day in and day out. We want to right. see how, why going to this place is bringing up memories of their mother and how letting that go is painful for them. You know? Yes whatever right. it is let us see who this person is and and give us those little bits of who they were just before i met them because i you know, just met alexa and i already know a lot about her before you know right oh i'm i'm with her in this moment i can kind of picture a little bit about yeah i can see her getting ready and i can see her packing her bag and let us let us in slowly and and internally that internal stuff is that's that's the that's the juice and it this scene jasmine does a wonderful job at showing that marriage between the internal and the external, especially because it's a perfect example of a cause and effect scene that works effectively. We know what has happened. They've asked the question. She says, yes. What's the effect of that? We're going to move naturally into a scene that's going to build stakes and build content because of that decision. So looking at that scene pattern and always making sure that we can have cause and effect because it's easy to have a single scene where you can do a really good job at showing internal and external working well together, but does it build a story? Right. Well, Rona, this was really fun. Oh, I loved being here with you. I enjoyed it very much. You have amazing advice. I think Thank you. I am excited <laughs> to, to support your writing and your book coaching. I hope that everyone has listened to Rona. And if you are a romance writer, you are heading over to her page, which will be in the show notes. Won't be my name. It'll be a different name. I write under a pen name. So yes. Will... So talk about that. Tell us. I tell us where to find you. This tell us actually, where to find you. This is my third pen name, and I could do a whole show about that, but it's not the topic you discuss. I write under the name Elena E L 
E-N-A, Markham, M-A-R-K-H-M-A-R-K-E-M. And this pen name actually marks a move into self-publishing. I had been published with small presses before that, and I made the decision to focus in on contemporary romance, actually, and Mm -hmm. self-publish. And so started to release the first book in a new series in August of 2022. Congratulations. Thank you. Second book came out in October 3rd. It's coming out in January. And what are the titles of those books? This is such a fun thing to do. I decided on everything has to be four syllables. So it's Once More With You, Meant To Be His, and the third book is This Time For Us. It's super fun. Well, Rona, thank you so much again. I think that this has been a wonderful episode. It was just lovely having you. Thank you so much for joining me for another great episode of Lint Match. I had such a fun time analyzing and discussing the first chapter of The Wedding Date by Jasmine Guillory. And I hope that this conversation brought you tips that will support your writing process, not only for the whole novel, but especially in those first pages in that first chapter, or if you're a contemporary romance or any type of writer. I mentioned this at the end of podcast episodes, but I just want to reemphasize how grateful I am not only for you being here and listening and supporting me in this podcast journey, but also for helping by either rating the show or writing a review, and especially when you refer Lit Match to your writer friends. Writing reviews, rating the show, and spreading the word are the best ways to help me find other writers like you who are either struggling with the literary agent research process or want to learn more great writing insights and how to write a better manuscript that will hook that dream literary agent on their list. Just to share some of the reviews, this one came from Lila Kate Cook and she rated it five stars. She said, great conversations. I am enjoying these conversations with literary agents and authors. Abigail is doing the research for writers by speaking with agents about their preferred genres and manuscript wish list, and she also dives into the craft by speaking with authors. I'm already hooked. This review is especially special to me. This is one of the writers that I have worked with as a book coach and as an editor, so seeing it pop up as a review and a rating was especially meaningful and touching to me. I care deeply about this writer and her journey. And I just so appreciate her spreading the word and sharing it with all of you. I hope that I can do exactly that for you. Continue to bring you great conversations and writing tips on how to improve your manuscript. If you have any questions or recommendations for the show, I'm all ears. Please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com. Until then, I hope that you're enjoying your writing process. If you are in some tough places, persevere. Please do finish your manuscript. Please do continue to put your heart and your hard work into making it the best it can be. The world needs more stories. This is how we become more human and connect and spread empathy and entertainment and all of these good elements that can really make differences in the world, or at least one of the many ways that we can do that. I'll be back soon with another episode from Lit Match. Please do stay tuned. And if you sign with that literary agent, I'd love to know. I'd also love to know when your book is coming out so I can celebrate you and spread the word to all of my wonderful, great listeners. Happy writing and good luck.